he really got me. You know, I think it's because he was gay. Got the nuances more. Get me a gay, Mickey. Gotta get a gay. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of In the Details, a celebration of nuance where each week I queen out on all of the acting choices, micro moments, and magic in the minutiae that make a scene great. My name is Colin Drucker. Your name is Barbara Belgettis again somehow. I don't know how that happened. And this week, we are finally, after a bit of a holiday hiatus, just a, just a holiday, not really a hiatus. I just took a few weeks off. Uh, we're finally getting back to Cherishing Valerie, and we're getting into part five of Cherishing Valerie. Um, yeah, no, I definitely did not take a break over the holidays. I was, A, like my day job, my like paying the bills, you know, my wigs and furs money. Uh, I was working a ton. And all right, Mary, I, if you're a crossover Mary, and I bet a lot of you are, I, you know, I was pumping out the content. So, um, but my, my intention was to give you like a very Valerie Christmas, you know? Um, I, I thought, oh, maybe I'll even release like one of the parts on Christmas, but you know, your tank is only so full. And I also, I feel like to be totally, (laughs) to be totally honest, like cherishing Valerie, I feel like I, I really put my back into it with this one in terms of like really kind of thinking through it. And I think, I got a little nervous about it, you know, and I think I probably procrastinated a little and, um, but I like went through it again last night and I like, you know, kind of cleaned it up a little bit and I was like, you know what? No, I'm feeling good about this. So, I mean, you know, cut to you hate it, but (laughs) no, I, um, but I don't know. That's just like full disclosure is like, I took a little break, but I probably also was like stalling. Um, anyway, that stalling did give me the opportunity to tell you that, um, and I'm not going to dive into it because you've been waiting long enough, but I did see the favorite. I feel like that's worth following up on because, you know, we've talked about that before and we've talked about Olivia Coleman, and I have seen the light. I, I mean, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, everyone, that I did not know about Olivia Coleman sooner. So I, the favorite was, I mean, she was just like amazing. I mean, it was just like her performance was a set piece in and of itself, you know, and obviously Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz are uh, great, but you know, both are going to get nominated for best supporting actress. Which one do I think would win or would it be somebody else? I don't know. We'll talk about that in another episode. We're going to have plenty of time to talk about best supporting actress nominees uh, in the next couple of months, I think. So uh, yeah, but anyway, since then uh, I did see the first episode of Broadchurch and it was a lot. Um, it was extra. And uh, I, I'm i never going to forget that. Oh, my God, that's Danny's trainer's moment. <laughs> I just think that really gooped me. Um, but Olivia Coleman is 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 remarkable. Wow. I just wow. I think someone had said she has this kind of Judy Garland quality. And I see it like it's not it's not the tragic part, but it's the like it's the sort of truth on her face. You know, it's uh there's something about her where it's like, God, you're just really fucking good at this. So I'm excited to talk about her more and more. Uh, I'm also, I, a number of people have told me to watch The Handmaid's Tale. And I have resisted it because I thought it was just going to be like this miserable experience. But I was talking to my friend last night and she was like, yeah, you really need to watch it. And I was like, yeah, but is it just like 
one punch in the gut after the other, and then you get like some oasis of hope, like at the tail end of the season. She's like, no, you get little drops of hope throughout the season. Like they give you, they give you reasons to come back. Uh, and of course, Anne Dowd, right? Anne Dowd, Anne Dowd, who I already loved from Hereditary. This is, you know, this is her wheelhouse. This is where, you know, this is where she's doing her best work, apparently. So I'll get to it. Um, I also, I, I probably should just let it be a surprise, but I want to do a little bonus episode. I think this weekend, I might even, I might even, no, I'm going to do it. I'm going to put out a bonus episode. Keep your peepers peeled for that. Uh, I wanted to do one of those, you know, some kind of year in review, year end kind of episode. And uh, it's currently ja- January 4th. I'm looking at the calendar. I can't even, four days in, I can't even remember the day of uh, the year, 2019. That's the year. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I still want to do a little something. So, and because you were so patient through so much of Christmas or December, um, not that I know if you were patient, you may have not been, but in any event, I'll try to, I'll try to make up for lost time. Uh, okay. This is enough rambling. I, we got to get into this. We got to get into Cherishing Valerie part five. This week, we're really kind of t- walking through the work of the first episode of season two, because it's really incredible. I mean, if you think about it, like they're bridging nine years and like so much, like a ho- so much has changed. So much would have to change. And how do you, how do you how do you do it? How do you come back? Well, there you go. There it is. How do you come back? Play the music right here. You know what I mean? I'm done. Uh, with that said, let's get into it. Let's dive into part five. Well, I got it of Cherishing Valerie. Season two of The Comeback is something of a high-wire act. The fact that it not only doesn't fail, but in some ways outshines season one is a testament to both Lisa Kudrow and Michael Patrick King. I, like so many people, have been quick to turn to Lisa Kudrow, so to speak, and ask to see the architectural plans for Valerie, to understand all of the work going on underneath the surface that is bringing this seemingly endless display of detail and well, nuance to the screen. We look at her the way we look at Meryl and ask, how are you doing this? Every interview I've heard or seen with Lisa Kudrow, she's been quick to deflect the praise for Valerie. She talks about her as if she is just like a witness, just a conduit for this woman to manifest from. I think it's easy to read that as modesty or humility but that doesn't jive with the rest of Lisa Kudrow's energy in interviews. She comes across as someone who's married to the truth and can be surprisingly blunt in a way that her trademark characters don't even hint at. The truth is, Lisa Kudrow has not been training her whole life to do this expert-level work. She has no formal training beyond the boot camp of the Groundlings where Valerie was first developed in sketches. I don't get the impression that she was doing a character diary or a family history of, or any of the deep analysis it seems would be necessary to bring Valerie to life so perfectly. I think this is truly a form of channeling, and Michael Patrick King is like a co-shaman in the summoning of Valerie.
there's a great interview, Lisa Kudrow. I feel so weird just saying either Lisa or Kudrow. So we're on a first name, last name, and even middle name basis with Michael Patrick King. Uh, but there was an interview she did for Vulture that I think really highlights how integral Michael Patrick King is to the comeback and truly the level of nuance we see in the show. You have a number of uh, episodes that include the, the, I guess, what we call the mistakes, and some of them even use it for sort of a poetic effect, like you'll end with, you know, the the camera lying on a ledge and you're seeing the rest of the scene sideways or mm -hmm. something like that. How much of that comes out of just, yeah, how much of it is planned in advance and how much of it is a case of just, they, you look at it in the editing room later and go, ooh, that seems like a good place. Um, that, I, it's, it's usually not in the editing room. Michael, like I said, he's usually on set, whether he's directing or not, and he's visually remarkable. And so he'll see something happening. And when we do the shot again, he makes sure that the camera's catching it a little better. Or yeah, he'll have the idea. I can't remember if it's in the script. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't remember, but he, that's what, I mean, makes the show the show. Right. It's that stuff that Michael discovers on set. And just put it down, let me see what that looks like. And that's, yeah, that's how we'll end it. We'll just hear them talking and we'll play the music and yeah. So the sense of spontaneity that makes a show so distinctive is very, it's very carefully monitored. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, no, he, I mean, it's really incredible what happens to a scene if we're just doing what we wrote and then he'll feel like it's flat. I don't know, it's flat, it's not. Let's just have, can we have that guy just like bump into them while they're talking or a guy's carrying a big thing and walks just right between the two of them to interrupt the conversation. And, um, and then he won't even tell us, you know, we'll just keep going. But that's the stuff that, he's unbelievable. Michael. I think this is really the reality of the comeback. It relies on the collaboration of both of them to exist at all. Lisa Kudrow also talks about how Valerie was written through this uh, improv-based conjuring they both did, where sometimes she was Valerie and sometimes he was, and they would just transcribe what came out. I think what excites me most about that, and I would love to be able to see the script, is the fact that every um and uh and pause and fragment was taken down and recognized and committed to paper. There is value and necessity to each of those details. Saying the versus a uh can change a line entirely. There is so much said with an unfinished sentence, so much economy in an ellipsis that suggests a monologue. I think all of this tremendous eye for detail is key to making something of a seamless transition from the first season to the second. And by all means, it could have failed or just been an innocuous retread of season one, you know, novel after nine years, but not exactly groundbreaking TV anymore. Oddly enough, it was by purposely taking us back to season one territory from the characters to plot points to actual repeated beats while being at times incredibly meta down to Valerie having her own comeback nine years later on an HBO show. It was through that purposeful reflection of season one that they ended up telling us a new story. One of the most interesting things I found in this 200th viewing of the comeback was how many small nods to season one there were. And some feel almost subliminal, like the way Valerie fails when introducing Mickey in season one, uh, and then when introducing Billy in the first episode of season two. Ding well, dong, this Avon is Mickey, calling. 
What? I'm Ding sorry. dong, Avon calling. Oh, <laughs> very good. This is Mickey. He's funny. Hi, Billy, publicist. Oh, wait, that sounded like his last name. Let's do it again. Hi, Billy. Oh, oh, my oh is this the Andy Cohen pitch? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. We've been communicating. Yeah. I wonder if the suggestion is that as much as has changed over the years, it hasn't really changed at all. Valerie never really learned from her mistakes in season one. She thrived in spite of them. She learned that the fame game had changed and she adapted. It's in season two where Valerie learns the hard lessons. Valerie's journey back onto television in the first episode is really brilliant and deserves to be recognized for how much heavy lifting it does in terms of exposition, advancing the plot in that typically unpredictable way that feels more like untangling a stubborn knot. We never find out what inspired her to start this pilot project, but I think the suggestion might be that it's partially because Francesca is now in college in New York. In the infamous parking lot showdown later in the season, Valerie talks about making Mark's house a home and staying at the dinner table with Francesca to make her eat long after Mark had given up. I don't think Valerie's motherly instincts were ever finely honed, but the Valerie we see after those trying years of raising a teenager with an eating disorder is wizened, more resilient, less willing to tolerate bullshit. If the Valerie of 2014 had faced that late-night humiliation in the writer's room for Room and Board, I still think she would have left the cookies, but she probably would have said something to their faces. I imagine with Francesca 2,500 miles away and Mark working and traveling and doing his usual routine, she was left a little empty-handed. At some point, she had to have glanced at her it wall, from the chair backs to the picture of her holding the People's Choice Award to her Parade magazine cover, and, and thought, who am I now? Or, you know, more appropriately, what am I doing with my life? Or as she describes it to Andy Cohen, here's what I'm up to. I love the casual tone of that. Like, the cameras are just catching all of this life in her life. But that's actually the problem here. There's not much to capture. We get caught up on Valerie's career since Room and Board and the comeback were canceled, and the launching point from there is essentially, I was there at the beginning, and it's time for me to come back. Well, reality TV has had quite the evolution. It's a different reality. <laughs> and I should know, because I was there at the beginning with the comeback. Back then, it was just me and people eating bugs on Survivor. Uh, what's this? This is entertainment? Well, as it turns out, yes. Yes, it is. I was right. And now people can't get enough. You've got dancers and duck hunters and designers and... Oh, just the other night, I saw a show where it was just real people sitting on a couch watching a show. And I thought, well, it's official. They've run out of ideas. So, looks like it's time for me to come back. What we're really seeing here is that while Valerie is trying once again to produce a life she thinks people want to see, real life is happening all around her. Mickey's illness is hinted at with increasing volume and depth as the season goes on, but in the first episode we almost miss it because the joke is about Valerie getting interrupted. The focus is on the unending foibles of Valerie trying to believe in the myth of control. 
the reality is Mickey has skin cancer. This, of course, was also the reality for Robert Michael Morris, the actor who played Mickey, who is Mickey. As I mentioned in, uh, I think, probably part two of Cherishing Valerie, Mickey Dean was based on Michael Patrick King's old drama teacher, who just so happened to be Robert Michael Morris himself. So Lisa Kudrow and Michael Patrick King knew that he was sick when they were writing season two, and instead of backing away from it, they included it as part of the story. Knowing that, the portrayal of Mickey's declining health, especially in the most darkly comedic moments, is incredibly bold. It also only makes the last 10 minutes of the last episode that much harder to watch. It, it becomes a dramatization of real life, with professional actors portraying characters as well as portraying themselves in a way. I mean, you, you half expect Michael Patrick King to show up as a doctor. Once Billy shows up with the news of seeing Red, Valerie's attention is officially off of Mickey, except as her sidekick, a sort of emotional support stylist who keeps her hair in place. Seeing Red is also something of a lifeline for Valerie, as she realizes after running herself into Andy Cohen and RuPaul at lunch that creating a good reality show means you have to literally create scenes by creating a scene. Perfectly timed, this is when we see Juna Milken again making a huge scene herself as she leaves the chateau. This is another season one parallel. A single paparazzi hounded Juna, and by proxy, Valerie, while they were having lunch at the Ivy, and now Juna is basically getting the Beyonce treatment, or, you know, Jennifer Lawrence at best, right? We only see Juna in the first and last episodes of season two, but she radiates star power. There is a, a genuine open energy about her that from interviews seems to also be something inherent to Malin Ackerman as a person. Her appearance this season almost doesn't feel like acting, and more like some kind of hyper-meta cameo by Malin Ackerman. This grown-up version of Baby Girl is, most importantly of all, still kind. That was her most resounding quality in the first season, and the way that kindness has matured with age is so well portrayed just in how Juna holds focus with Valerie despite the sea of paparazzi. But especially when she asks, where's Mickey, and then hugs him and, and spends a moment, you know, flirting with him. It's a really economic choice to tell us a lot about what fame has and hasn't done to Juna. The way she can you know, still connect, the way she talks about falling in love with a robot in her next movie with a self-aware eye roll. She's not over it. She just sees it for what it is. I get the impression she's not doing music anymore, but is making millions of dollars doing blockbuster movies instead. I've briefly talked before about Juna and Valerie's conversation at Juna's party before the Emmys, but it's an integral moment in helping open Valerie's eyes to what's going on around her. Juna's moment of truth with Valerie and that extended hug shows us a Juna that's all grown up. She's no longer baby girl. She's the wiser one, the more successful one, the one with more experience in this business in a way. She's the more emotionally intelligent one, but maybe she's always been, and we're finally seeing it on full display. We're definitely going to dig more into that scene later on, but seeing what Juna has become, it's nice to think that Valerie had some small part in it. I think if you had asked Juna, she might even say it was a big part. I don't think, amid that sea of paparazzi, that Juna would have ever noticed Valerie if she hadn't called out, Baby girl! There is a loyalty there. Not an obligation, but a recognition. And yet, the ugly truth of all this is that Valerie, despite whatever good she's done in Juna's life, 
is still somewhat of an opportunist. She was genuinely happy to run into Juna, but even happier to get so many shots with the paparazzi. And what a great moment to have on the show, right? Valerie at first puts her blinders up about seeing Red, but in a way, it's it's almost the same project as, as the one that she's doing. It's a reimagining of Valerie Cherish. Because here she is trying to make her life look like something it isn't, and all the while, Pauly G has been kind of doing the same thing with the creation of Mallory Church, who in and of herself, like Lisa Kudrow, is a channel. Pauly, now sober after years of drug addiction, has clearly channeled a deep resentment of and potential minor obsession with Valerie into a mutation named Mallory, and his experience working on Room and Board is being retold with Valerie as an active antagonist in his life. The scenes we do end up seeing show her being nothing short of a braying shrew, even suggesting she should take some responsibility for his drug abuse. It is, just to read about it, a toxic situation to get any closer than a cease and desist letter to. And even then, it could get messy. And we wouldn't want that, would we? Better you stay out of it, Red. That could get messy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Could get messy. When Valerie gets to HBO, she stages this, well, now I'm really mad moment in the elevator. Valerie has an idea of the mess she's going to get herself into, or at least has decided this is a mess she can navigate, or she's just flying blindly at Andy Cohen's admittedly vague suggestion that she needs to create a scene if she's going to keep up with those Real Housewives. Looking back, all he did was ask her if she created a scene when the host tried to stop her from entering the restaurant. But for Valerie, that's all she needed to hear. For Valerie, having to admit in some way that she hadn't thought of that is such a misstep, and she wouldn't be repeating that mistake twice. And so here she is at HBO. We see Sharon again, who was the casting director at the network for Ruben Board and now works at HBO. Sharon, by the way, is played by Marla Garland, who is a casting director in real life, so I am sure she's witnessed more than one outraged actor turn into a total team player the moment an opportunity to go in for a role was presented. What happens here, however, is not that Sharon necessarily offers. Valerie just decides she'll go in. Does Valerie realize she could audition? It seems some kind of old muscle memory kicks in. She's, she's been asked to sign in. She sees a lobby full of competition. She hears that Catherine Hahn is auditioning for the role. So Valerie is an alcoholic at an open bar right now. The way she tells Sharon, I'll go in, is the addiction speaking, not Valerie. She even has to remind herself as she's going in that she's angry, that she's here to create a scene, but the drug is already kicking in. What she arrives to in are three mild-mannered HBO executives and Pauly G, who has matured and sobered into a warm teddy bear of a man who offers Valerie a hug and Mickey a fist bump. Valerie is struggling to hang on to the anger, but Pauly's warmth diffuses her. And then she finds out that they actually wanted her to audition for the role. You know, I'm not happy with you, or you, okay? You need to cease and desist. We did reach out to your agent. We never heard back. You reached out for, to get my permission to... No, no. We wanted to see if you were interested in coming in for it. Oh, you want you wanted to see if I... I oh. Oh, and you didn't hear back. Okay. 
Well, you know, they just keep promoting assistants over there. Next time, check the assistance directory, maybe. Right. <laughs> well, it was my understanding that we don't need your permission for a character Pauly G created called Mallory Church. It's fiction. <laughs> well, it sounds like a little miscommunication problem. Yeah. So. Uh -huh. But you read the script, and here you are. It'd be great to hear you read it. I do think the head HBO exec, James, has dealt with countless hysterical actors as well, and his reframing of the situation feels manipulative and a bit like gaslighting. Whether or not he's telling the truth, he clearly knows the effect an offer to audition has on someone like Valerie. I would assume that they really did want her to audition, and we know Valerie can't get a hold of her agent, so the invitation never got to her. I think it's an odd move at best to consider Valerie in the first place, but to be fair, much like Sharon playing a casting executive at HBO, she is the perfect person for the role. And as we find out later, she has a certain realness about her that a lot of other actresses her age don't have. Any attempts at cosmetic surgery have been temporary or fixed. We learn of a past of botched fillers and Botox in episode two. So all of the lines in age and life, the life Valerie wasn't quite sure she even had, still shows on her face. It is, ironically enough, her realism that gets her the role. Not just the fact that she is essentially Mallory Church, but that she conveys a unique sense of truth. Of course, much like Lisa Kudrow herself, Valerie can really only be a conduit for that truth. We'll see that later in that amazing scene from the dailies of her acting, but the brilliant performance Valerie ends up giving as Mallory is what happens when she's not looking or trying to steer it in a certain direction. Even that daily scene, her biggest takeaway is that they need more lighting so people can see her face. We see this in her cold reading at the audition. The best part is the part she didn't see coming. You think I'm this dried up middle-aged woman. Look at the jokes you write. Look at this tracksuit you make me wear, all saying the same thing. I'm old, I'm annoying, I'm unfuckable. Well, I'm not the joke, okay? You are, Mitch. And instead of spending all your time trying to make me the joke, why don't you do your job and write me one, huh? A real joke, Mitch, not you and your boys off in a room making fun of an old woman's pussy. Yeah, I heard you. I heard what you think of me. I heard it. Well, maybe you and everyone in television... Oh, said it wrong. I'm going to go back. Okay. Well, maybe you and everyone in the television business can't see me as desirable. But there are plenty of men out there who... But there are plenty of men out there who would still want to fuck an old lady like me. So, fuck you, Mitch. Just fuck you and fuck you. Okay. That last and fuck you to Pauly is nine years in the making, and it's something no one has seen from Valerie before. She claims she can throw the fucks around in season one, but here she actually does. That raw rage, in some ways, is Mallory Church. Who better to bring that character to life than the person harboring that character in her own psyche? There is potentially a note that Valerie could hit that no one else auditioning could hit because it's so specific to her. We don't see her get the news that she's been cast, but we do get to see her telling Mark, who has objected to seeing Red from the start and coordinated with the lawyers to send a cease and desist. 
So when she reveals that she's, you know, run back into the burning building in a polyester catsuit, essentially, Mark doesn't take it well. This moment is truly an act one gun for the destruction of their marriage this season. Mark has had the rug pulled out from under him for the first of many increasingly aggressive times. While he says no fucking way, he knows he has no control over this. The cameras are already in his house. Valerie Cherish is back on TV. Um, got something to tell you. Tell me what? Well, Marky Mark, just got a call from my agent, Sean something. Um, HBO and Mr. Polly G loved me and offered me a part in seeing Red. How do you like that? <laughs> well, how'd that happen? Aren't we suing them? Well, okay, that was a mistake, you know. Lesson learned. Took myself too seriously, you know. It's a part in a show. Well, last night, you said it was you. Yeah, and somebody's gonna play me, you know, and not as good. Now it's me playing me. Well, <laughs> I don't think no so. No way, Val. I mean, no fucking way. Well. To be continued. Nikki, are you coming? And that, my friends, was part five of Cherishing Valerie. Uh, we are we are just beginning to dive into season two. Next week, we're going to be looking at Valerie Cherish, the TV star. This incredible rise that she has from, you know, D-list, maybe G-list actress to, uh, you know, this, this brave new performer, a performer who's called Brave by the New York Times. Uh, that's... Um, I think that's I, mean, I I love that moment. I love that scene that she watches at the dailies, and I'm excited to talk about that and to really see who that version of Valerie is and um and who this show brings out of her because I think it brings out obviously some of her best work, and of course, I think it brings out some of uh, her worst, you know, some of her worst fame monster, you know. As uh, as Pauly G says to her at one point, you're the monster, Val. You are. There's no voices. You're the monster. And she does. I think in a lot of ways we see that she does turn into the monster. So, um, but man, what a great performance comes out of it, right? Uh, but anyway, we will talk about all of that next week. Uh, and of course, keep your eyes peeled for a bonus episode in the meantime. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on Cherishing Valerie or other things you want to hear me queen out about or... Uh, just you want to say hi, whatever. I love getting emails. I love getting tweets. I love hearing from you. I love interacting. Uh, it's 2019. Let's, you know, let's say hi. I don't know why that, why 2019 is a reason to say hi, but why not, right? Anyway, it's very easy to do that. You just drop me an email in the details pod at gmail.com. You can connect with me on Twitter at Colin Drucker. And of course, if you want to leave something really permanent, you can uh, head over to iTunes and you can leave me a five-star rating and a positive review. And, uh, yeah, let the world know that uh, this is a podcast, much like All Right, Mary, worth your time, talent, and energy. Uh, Anyway, that's all I got for you. Thank you so much, as usual, for stopping by for another episode of In the Details, for another uh, slice of Valerie Cherish. And uh, next week, we'll see you back for more. Details, nuances, micro-moments. Micro-moments. And uh, I'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.